Well, good morning and welcome. And if you're joining us online this morning, we are really glad to have you with us again today. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the last book of the Bible again, the book of Revelation, looking at chapters 11 and 12 in our series on Bible prophecy. Revelation 11 and 12. Obviously, 2020 has not been the most pleasant year. Um, You may have seen something like this on on, uh, social media as well, but one of my college friends uh, posted, is it too late to take my mom up on her threat about slapping me into next year? Uh, (laughs) Could we just skip this one? Everything unpleasant that we've experienced more recently, and I would add everything unpleasant we've ever experienced, is because of sin. Satan was the first sinner. He rebelled against God. We'll look even in Revelation, I think we see allusion to that today. But of course, Satan brought that sin into the Garden of Eden, tempting Eve and Adam And the race fell, and with it came ongoing sin, disease, death. Really everything evil descends from that. So it's not surprising that today as we look at this final seven-year slice, or I should say the next seven-year slice of time in biblical sequence called the Great Tribulation, As Satan's time runs out, where he has the freedom that he's had this era, it's not surprising that there is a flurry of satanic evil. It shouldn't surprise us. It is the nature of Satan, and then given the pressure of the time, that there would be outstanding extreme evil. We could ask the question any time when we experience the effects of sin and evil, why is God allowing that? We're, we're not really addressing the problem of evil so much today, except to ask this question, how is God glorified in times of evil? Uh, last week, we, I think, in this uh, study, in study, study of uh, tribulation, saw one reason why. Because God is bringing people to faith in Christ always, including the tribulation. Remember how we saw how 144,000 Jews came to faith in Christ during that time? So God is glorified when anybody comes to faith in him. And today we see how God is glorified when in the midst of satanic attacks on his people, he protects many, many of them. God is a God of Uh, assurance and safety and protection we see in these chapters. Growing up, I uh, remember sometimes going to salvage yards with my dad when he would need certain parts. We called them junkyards, and some of them had the classic junkyard dog, and uh, they looked pretty bad and angry, and I'm pretty sure they were if you got on their side of the fence, but you realize you're always safe if you stay on this side of the fence. And the fence is stopping whatever it is that that dog would have in, in his nature. And we have to realize that God fully controls evil, and thus he fully controls Satan. And so that's really why I want us to bring our hearts today, is to get this reassurance that as we see evil and its effects all over the world, that we understand and focus on the nature of our God. The very fact that we are studying Bible prophecy tells us that God knows everything. He knows the future. If he knows the future, it's because he controls the future. That's how he knows what will happen is he controls what's going to happen. So as we uh, come back into this, in case uh, you need the review or in case you might even be uh, new to our our series, uh, I'd like us to go back to our chart Uh, to see some of the things we do know about uh, sequence. Not time, we don't know dates, we don't know when, but we do know certain seasons in God's plan. So, 
Picking it up really from the time of the cross 2,000 years ago, we are living in the church age uh, somewhere in that season of time. And what we've seen in uh, 1 Thessalonians and elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 15, that uh, the next event is something we would call the rapture because that's the term with, that Paul uses. We're going to be caught up together with Christ, meet the Lord in the air, and we'll be forever with the Lord. That is followed by this really unique season called the tribulation, seven years that we learned about uh, when we studied Daniel. Daniel 9 scopes the history of Israel, and it brings it right up to the time of Christ, and then there's a break, and he says there's going to be another seven year or one week, it's called, but it's it's a season of years, not days, when it says a week, so it's seven years. And then that seven year season becomes a focus of the book of Revelation, which is just part of our study. It ends in an event called, we can call the second coming. It's different than the rapture because it's at the end of the tribulation, and we'll be looking at that uh, soon in in a future week. But Christ comes to judge the world of unbelievers, very different from the rapture when he comes to deliver or rescue those of us who are believers in Christ. It's followed by a season called the millennium, Revelation chapter 20. Now, the, rever- the uh, millennium happens on earth. So it's, it's real people like us. It's, not, it's not, <laughs> not that we aren't going to be real people in heaven, but we're going to be with our glorified bodies. This is going to be people with regular human bodies as we have now on earth. Who's going to populate the millennium? It's those that God protects all the way through this very difficult time or season called the tribulation. So, yes, we see martyrdom in the tribulation, but we also then see that God protects and preserves and keeps many of them safe. And that's much of what we see now today in Revelation 11 and 12. This whole season, we've seen the term is the day of the Lord. And as we focus on the tribulation years, we see, and this is especially true today, that there is two very different halves in the tribulation three and a half years, three and a half years. The second three and a half years is a time of great tribulation. Uh, That's when Satan really unleashes his fury against God's people. So that gives us a little bit of a background as we come to Revelation chapter 11. We see God is in control when his servants are attacked. And as a servant of God, you and I, need to find assurance that God is fully in control whenever we feel attacked, however we feel attacked, however we feel unsafe. I hope you walk out today with a real sense of God is in control and I can trust him with my safety. Verse 1. I was given, this is John in the vision, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. Okay, so the temple, there is some type of uh, temple restored during the tribulation age, and John is given a reed, which is like a measuring rod. There was this plant in, uh, in Israel or Jordan area, that's still there I'm sure, that grows some 15, 20 feet high, and it's like straight, like a cane pole or something. And so they would cut portions of that off, and it was a measuring tool for them. So that's the idea. Go and measure in the sense of counting somehow. I don't know if it's pointing out to count numerically how many people are there, but they are worshipers, and so we assume these are Christians in the tribulation age, particularly focused, as we know the tribulation is, focused on Jewish believers. So that's a good thing. Now, verse 2 is a bit of a contrast, but exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now, Gentiles by nature doesn't mean they're unbelievers, but in this case or context, they are. And they're going to trample. They're going to create chaos. So there's going to be a terrible time of conflict going on. The Gentile court, uh, everybody who knew the temple grounds knew that the Jews only could be in this. The Jews could come to this area, but the outer court was reserved for Gentiles. Well, it's a picture here or a vision saying that uh, unbelievers are going to be trampling in Jerusalem, especially for how long? 42 months, do the math. How many years? It's three and a half years. 
And I will give, verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So God's going to appoint two special servants, witnesses, and they're going to prophesy for 1260 days. Uh, If you can do some math again, uh, you may recall that prophetic years, they were rounded off in the Jewish calendar at 360 days. And so this is also three, three and a half years. So what seasons of time are referred to? The 42 months, I think, is pretty obviously the last half, the, the worst half of the tribulation. And then there's some disagreement, as there are on many of these areas by Bible readers and scholars. But uh, the 1260 days in which these two servants minister, I believe, best characterizes the first half of the tribulation, Uh, and I base that on the fact of, as we'll see the story develop, how the ministry of those two witnesses ends really fits well with the midpoint of the great tribulation. So let's read about these two witnesses. That's really what this chapter is about. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. These are are pictures of how uh, people are supposed to notice a lampstand. And uh, uh, olive trees had some healing qualities. So there's a healing. Maybe it's the spiritual repentance or, or whatever that is pictured. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. If you've read the Old Testament, does this bring up a number of different Old Testament characters? Elijah uh, asked God to shut off the rain in that time of judgment on King Ahab. And Moses, of course, turned the waters to blood and had other plagues, and so it's an Old Testament-type prophetic ministry that God is giving them power in that way. There will be uh, significant, uh, almost freedom of these prophets, witnesses, to attack the enemies of, of God. And uh, the fire out of the mouth, you know, is this, I, I don't know, this, sometimes, I just want to explain a little something about Biblical symbols, because we're going to look at a lot of them today. Many people avoid symbols in prophecy. They say, well, it's just a bunch of symbols we can't really know. But here's something we know about symbols. If ever you see a symbol in the Bible, it, it symbolizes something real, or there's no point. Symbols have to mean something literal. I'm wearing a ring. It'd be kind of foolish to do this if I was single, because then that symbol doesn't relate to anybody. But if I have a real marriage, and so the symbol makes sense. So while we may not always know what every symbol means clearly in the book of Revelation or elsewhere, if there's a symbol, it is because there is a corresponding reality. And so the reality is that that these, these men are able to somehow judge the earth. Now, whether that fire is literal, that's where I was going. The fire may or may not be literal, but they're able to produce death, um, in judgment, carrying out God's wrath on sin. At the same time that God is protecting them, God has a plan that will allow them to be killed. This is the hard part many times as we look at the sovereignty of God. So if, if God has the power to protect, why, why does he sometimes withhold that power to protect This we can be sure of. God is desiring to be glorified, so his plan will allow suffering or whatever for a good purpose. Watch how this plays out as God allows an evil act. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss, that's the Antichrist, will will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Okay, now we know what this symbol means. Obviously, it's Jerusalem. 
For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. So they, the world, unbelieving world, that has been afflicted by these two instruments of God's wrath will put on a big worldwide party. Jerusalem, interestingly, is uh, described here as Sodom and Egypt. Sodom is an Old Testament illustration uh, of sexual perversion is what it was known for. So Jerusalem will become a perverse city during this time. And Egypt is historically known as a nation in opposition to Israel and God's people. So uh, that's part of it being trampled. So Jerusalem will be in terrible turmoil during these days. And then when finally God allows them to be killed, they're going to be celebrating. And in fact, it says that people of every tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. You know, today, we don't have a problem reading that and guessing how that would work. We are so accustomed to live news. But I was thinking this week, how did people take this 100 years ago? And I happen to have two very old commentaries on the book of Revelation. One was published in 1915, and one is 15, and one is in 1930. They basically just skipped right over it. Even though they take most of the understanding of Revelation, I'd be in agreement with. But they clearly didn't know what to do with that, because how can everybody watch the same event at the same time? That's not possible. But of course, those books those were published just before the very first uh, live uh, TV Broadcast, So we can see how some of the things of, of prophecy that 100 or 200 or 500 years ago they didn't know what to do with, you start seeing some of these pieces uh, coming together. But clearly, uh, evil feels at that time to be out of control, right? If you're a believer and, and, and your two guys are killed, wouldn't you despair? Oh no, God has allowed these two instruments... What's going to happen now? But God is always in control, and God is always steering things so that he will be glorified. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, where they're all watching, you know, the live cam is, is, is streamed, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them on live stream. That's, not, that's in the Hebrew. No, I could. <laughs> Greek. Um, God raises them from the dead. So God had a purpose in allowing them to be killed, and it said he would be glorified when he raised them from the dead. Then they heard that they as the crowd watching and observing. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. So there is a, an ascension. This pictured more like Jesus' ascension than it does the rapture, which is instantaneous. But everybody gets to see these men alive and, and ascending to heaven. Verse 13, at that very hour there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, the third is coming soon. So is God glorified? Oh yeah. God, is, God allows evil. Somehow in his perfect, wise, infinite mind. So that ultimately he is greater glorified. God allows evil so that he is greater glorified. And, and these don't seem to be repentant type worshipers. The, this is forced worship. They are forced, it, it seems, to glorify God. So during these days, evil seems to rule. God steps in to glorify himself. Now, as so hap often happens in our study of Revelation, we notice the scene switches. This has all happened on earth. Now the next scene is in heaven. 
The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Anybody ever sing the uh, Messiah oratorio? that sound familiar? That's uh, one of the songs that, uh, that just resonates with the, the glory of God, and it comes right out of this heavenly scene. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Don't, don't you wish sometimes that God would just begin to reign? You know, you and I have confidence in his power and go, Come on, begin to reign. You know, show it. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, perhaps referring to these two men, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great. Think of the rewards of God. It's, it's, it's this, uh, it will be worth it all. Whatever suffering we face, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, Revelate, uh, Hebrews eleven six. It's a time for rewarding and for destroying those who destroy the earth. And so, so what we are, are taught here is to relax, I think, to trust, to wait. We are not God, but we trust God. We are not God, but we wait on God. We are not God, but that's why we can relax in the security only God can give. Now, I think sometimes when we think about trust and focus on trust, we should ask uh, a logical question. Does that mean sit on our hands? No, no. I like the song as we often sing here, trust and obey. Okay, so when we're trusting there needs to be a corresponding obedience. What I think we see in the tribulation is that obedience then looks much like obedience now, which is how it's really always looked. In other words, what is God, by his spirit, moving you to do in obedience? So as we would apply this to ourselves now in the church age, our question is, what does obedience look like for you? It didn't change because of a pandemic. We are just in the age in which Christ commissioned us to go and make disciples of all the earth. So if you kind of wonder, you know, what is God teaching you? It's just maybe just intensifying the same thing he's been teaching us all along. Maybe we haven't listened very well. But how can we make disciples? And how can we even seize the moment of, of whatever the world is going through or your neighbors or your family is going through to better make disciples? Disciples, how can you better use your spiritual gifts? So God has gifted you. God has given you some unique opportunities. What are those opportunities? We should be more dedicated to those opportunities now than ever just because we're kind of, you know, our our world has shaken up a little bit. So seek an opportunity that fits you, that the Spirit of God leads you to do. If we're doing some things with the rescue mission, there's some help needed. Maybe that's you. Bulletin is describing our need for some workers if, if uh, we're able to open our, our uh, children's ministries. Maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe it's someone you know that is discouraged and fearful, and you can come along and be, uh, be the encouragement to them. Maybe it's uh, someone that really is needing prayer right now. Maybe it's someone who's a victim of, of some... Uh, crime or injustice or abuse or, or whatever it is, and, and God will direct you because trust is not about doing nothing. Trust is about responding, trusting God with the whole and then obeying him with the specific things he might have us to do. Just be sure, and, and this, is, this, is, this is why I think this is important, is that when we do have some of our security threatened for whatever reason, don't become isolated and selfish. That, our, our, our impulse is always to pull in and make sure I'm taking care of me and mine, but no, it's actually an opportunity where God says, no, push through this and see that I have given you unique opportunities at each season of life. 
and trust in who I am. Verse 19, this, this chapter wraps up with a powerful expression of the power of God. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and great hailstorm. The power of God is just waiting in the wings. And anything that, that we might see as, why doesn't God do something? It's certainly not because he can't, but because it's not his time. So if that's conflict on earth that is celebrated in heaven, uh, that same theme continues into chapter 12. And in chapter 12, uh, the focus is on God's enemy, Satan. Satan, as we discussed last week, is going to be working through this human instrument, the Antichrist. But uh, Satan himself is front and center in, in chapter 12. And we find, as it comes to our own sense of fears or security or safety, and then the same for the uh, believers in the tribulation age, that God controls Satan. The fence is secure, and the dog can't get past it. This section, this section has uh, three uh, scene changes. It starts out in earth, goes to heaven, and then back down to earth. The first is war on earth. Now, just want to warn you as we go into the first six verses of this, we're, we're diving pretty deep into symbols. Remember, symbols have corresponding reality. And uh, we have to be humble enough to know that we don't always know everything. But we're going to make some hopefully good theological guesses at what these symbols represent because they do mean something and God put them in here for a reason. Um, I'm going to read through them and you, you might get a little bit lost. And even as we get details or diagrams, uh, if you do get a little bit lost, please rejoin us later and realize that the main point is that God's in control and that Satan will be vanquished. And you can rest in that. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So if you can kind of picture a symbol, a sign, this woman about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might destroy her child the moment it was born. So we're picturing a, a dragon, a horrendous looking thing. It flings out stars and it's threatening the woman about to give birth. Got it? Kind of two, two visual pictures. So we're wondering who is this child about to be born? Verse she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Ah, we know who that is. It's Jesus. Okay. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. What's the point of all this, John? We come back to the, to the woman and God's care for the woman. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for, oh, 1,260 days. We, we already are uh, probably guessing that is the last half of the tribulation age. So let's kind of walk through this and see how, how in this vision God's given to John to make the case for God's control of evil that protects his special people, Israel, during this season of time. And so we see the character of God. But what he does is a little bit confusing to us because he picks out in all of, of uh, the history of the world, biblical history of the world, he picks out just a few select scenes to show Satan's downfall and God's victory. So let's kind of uh, try to plot this out a little bit. So if this is a timeline, whoa, whoa, whoa. Gave you all the answers too soon. The first one we met was the mother and child, which represents, I believe, Israel and not Mary. Mary would be one guess, but Mary is not needing protection in the tribulation. So 
it's most likely and most clearly Israel that gives birth to Jesus. Of course, Jesus coming from uh, the nation of Israel. And uh, whether the sun and moon represent the, the splendor of Israel, uh, perhaps, but the 12 stars, a good guess would be it represents the 12 tribes of Israel that are, are emphasized throughout uh, scripture. And so there's going to be a birth we know later to be Christ. The red dragon with the heads. The, the dragon we know is Satan because if you glance ahead to chap, the same chapter, verse 9, it says the dragon, also called the devil, so we know it's the devil. Okay, And the, and the, the heads and the, and the crowns and so forth, those are repeated in chapter 13. Uh, the Antichrist is one of the heads, so it seems to be evil rulers. So you have Satan and all the human evil rulers through whom he works. And I, I don't doubt it. You see some of the, the horrible, the, the, the Hitlers and Mussolinis and Saddams and so forth. You don't, I don't think you have to think too far <coughs> to realize that there's a real satanic influence on some of those individuals of history. And the same would be true of prophecy. Now this dragon has a tail that slings out stars. Uh, stars are a symbol uh, repeatedly in scripture of spirit beings. So sometimes the stars mean planetary objects like we know them to be, but other times the context is clearly about spirit beings, which talking about Satan is a very good likely explanation. So is this a description of Satan's fall? And when Satan rebelled against God, many of the angels, remember, went with him and followed in the rebellion. Is this an indication that one third of the angels fell, and it was a one-time done deal, and so now all of those angels, if indeed that's what this is referring to, are demons, and so kind of helpful to know if there's twice as many angels as there are demons uh, today. So they're slung to the earth, and then we see that in uh, verse 3, the dragon, uh, or rather 4, the dragon tried to kill Jesus but it didn't work. And so Satan failed to kill baby Jesus. How did he try to kill baby Jesus? Who did he work through there? Herod. So yeah, we remember our, our Christmas play, right? And so, you know, you know sometimes you, you read that and you don't quite realize how diabolical that effort is. That there would be a king so evil as to decree that in a little village all the babies two years old and under were to be killed, and they were. Though, of course, Jesus was sovereignly spared. Uh, I, I can't help but think of how diabolical it is to kill babies. And I think it, it does inform some of our, our understanding of our, our current... Uh, where does this idea come that you, you should abort babies? And now it creeps into infanticide at times as well. We, we need to recognize what is, what is spiritual and what is spiritual in the demonic sense as well. What is next? The baby child survives with an iron scepter, and so we picture his rule as we will see when we come to chapter 19 of Revelation. Goodness, he is the one who rules with an iron scepter. And it jumps from the birth of Christ, gives birth to a male child, verse 5, and then in verse, end of verse 5, her child was snatched up to God and to his throne, probably referring to the, so the birth would be the beginning of Jesus' incarnation, his life on earth, and the ascension would be he's caught up. So it skips over the whole life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, but the point is that, that Jesus is able to live his entire life on earth and is in heaven at the throne of God. Now, what's the point of all of this? It's to say, verse 6, that Israel will often be protected from Satan in the tribulation. So the God who has managed all of that throughout history and prophecy is able to keep Israel safe. And so the woman fled to the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. And we'll see that repeated again yet in this chapter. So it's growing our trust in God's control of evil, describing this conflict 
that has taken place raging through the centuries here on earth. Now the scene switches to a war in heaven, verses 7 through 12. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Satan was not strong enough. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So this is a scene of war in heaven. Real war. On on God's side, it is led by Michael, the archangel. Michael, the archangel, is uh, exactly this, a protector of Israel, according to Daniel... uh, Whoops. Okay, we'll get to this one later. Um, He's called the protector of Israel in Daniel 12. He protects God's people. Uh, I do have that slide. Okay, we're going to catch this one a little later. At this time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as never happened from the beginning of the nations until now. So the last half of the tribulation is this great distress, great tribulation, and Michael is the protector of his people at that time. Uh, Now we're at war in heaven. We're going to catch these slides in a different order. Michael is protecting, there's spiritual battle, there's a hateful assault, and God is somehow glorified by this plan of letting the angels, think of this, fight it out in heaven. We see only a glimpse on earth of what spiritual battle is. We, we see a little bit behind the veil and we, we sense Satan is behind this or Satan is behind that and, and, and we're right. But there is an unseen battle. This is going to rage in heaven, it seems, during the tribulation. Michael and the angels and, and somehow in the presence of God there is this, this unseen to us conflict. And when Satan loses, he is thrown to the earth and now you could say, Hell really does break loose on earth. It would seem we need to trust a God who allows evil in that degree for what he will do on earth. Somehow God is glorified when he lets evil happen, but then he vanquishes it. And I think the lesson to us is, are we humble enough to admit we don't know the plan of God for ending evil. And therefore, since we are prophetically told some of the plan, can we trust him with all of the plan? There's no way we can understand everything God's doing eternally. But are we humble enough that the glimpses we do know give us assurance about that which we don't know because we will never listen, we will never have the peace of God unless we have the humility of trusting God. Do we trust God? Or do we just say that we trust God? Because if we trust God, that means we can release control where we think we can control evil. Will we have the humility of trusting God and knowing nothing happens outside of his careful wise hand. I I love the way, having seen what will take place in heaven in this conflict, to see now in verses 10 and following that there is worship happening in heaven during this horribleness on earth. So so do do, do do you see how it's important that what is happening on earth can seem awful while God is so glorified that they're worshiping and celebration in heaven. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night. You wonder what Satan is doing. We'll come back to that. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. 
They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Just kind of walk through this. First of all, we see a descriptions of Satan throughout this whole passage. He's a dragon, powerful and dangerous. He's a serpent, which is a tempter, going back to Genesis 3. The word devil means slanderer. He's filled with lies, which is how he leads the whole world astray. So, so lies are just, that's his, his, his modus operandi there. Accuser of the, accuser, look at that, accuser of the brothers and sisters. Satan hates you. We talked about this last week. Satan hates you. If we can get this to a blank slide, if you can uh, help me out there. Uh, Satan hates you, and he is an accuser of the brothers. Satan wants you to doubt everything you believe, especially about God's grace. When we begin to uh, accept guilt of that which has already been forgiven, we are falling right into his trap. When we doubt a salvation he's secured, when we doubt uh, the sufficiency of the cross, when we let the accusations of others become the way we view ourselves, we are falling right into his trap. I want to get here to Romans 8. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Remember this passage, some of you? We, we accept guilt that we should not accept. It is God who justifies. You know what the word justifies means? It means that God has declared us righteous in the sight of God. We have to camp on that truth. We have to go back to that truth continually because it is Satan who wants us to believe otherwise about our salvation. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So when as believers we are drugged back into our past over and over and over again by our, our thoughts or other people's accusations or whatever it is, we need to completely go back to the cross over and over again, and remember that as those sins are coming before our mind, we can picture Christ as interceding and saying, I paid for that, I paid for that, I paid for that, I paid for that. And that is how secure your standing is before God. So don't let Satan become the accuser of you as a brother and make sure that you are not someone who is accusing the brethren. Don't do Satan's job for him. And when we are, when we are critical and, and, and condemning of one another, one, one uh, preacher from a previous generation, uh, Harry Ironside, said, uh, let Satan do the dirty work, meaning don't, don't, don't be accusing one another. That, that's, that's Satan's job. You and I should be building up uh, one another. How is it that these believers of this season are able to overcome when there's this kind of spiritual attack. Notice the three things in verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Let's, let's pause there a little bit and think about those. Are you devoted to the blood of the lamb, the message of the cross that defeated sin and Satan? This is where this, what we just talked about, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have not placed your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, this, this will not become meaningful to you until you do. Because your security in Christ is based on your faith in Christ. If you're trusting in, in good works or a church or rituals or something, then you're not trusting in the blood of the Lamb because what will secure and, and, and bring a sense of safety and confidence to believers in this worst of times is the same thing that 
bring us confidence today, the blood of the Lamb. And if we believe in the blood of the Lamb, then the word of our testimony will be based on that, and we will be speaking the, the good news. So this is prime time for sharing the gospel in the tribulation. So it's obviously prime time for us today as well, that, that if we, as we have opportunity, as we have gifts, as we have focus, as we can kind of clear this cloud and fog and clutter of, of self-absorption that we sometimes feel in uncertain times, we need to think clearly, how am I proclaiming the gospel? How am I helping that cause? And then they did not love their lives. Must be willing to sacrifice. Yes, some will actually pay the price with their life in that season. But where is, where is our sense of willingness to suffer? Uh, I, th I think sometimes God may allow difficult times just so we have a little more accurate view of, yeah, I'm in spiritual battle and I cannot expect to just be living the happy American dream day by day and throughout my life. Are we... Are we more committed to persecution avoidance or persecution acceptance? Do, do we realize it's, it's normal? We, we again, we will, we will pray for, for safety and, and we are seeing in this, even the final section we look at now, that God provides safety. But when we really trust God, we will begin to accept persecution and then we can truly appreciate protection. So God is at work in the tribulation both allowing a degree of persecution, a high degree of persecution, but at the same time giving this incredible uh, high degree of protection and safety. And so, again, it brings us to the issue of trust. Do we trust him to control evil? His time is short. If, if we know that there's a thousand-year period of time coming in which Satan is bound, he knows that his time is short. Verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman, remember, Israel, who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that he might fly to the desert. She might fly to the desert, prepared for her, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. One more way of indicating three and a half years. Time, single, times, Two and a half a time. Three and a half years. Again, I think, pointing to that last season. And God is going to protect those who flee to them. And that's what Matt, God had said, Christ had said in Matthew. He says, let those, when you see the abomination of desolation, let them flee to the mountains. Here it's called the desert. There is a I think, good suggestion of where this might be. Where is there a place outside of Israel that could be described as both uh, desert as well as mountain that might be a place of protection that has biblical significance? And there is a place called Petra today in, in Jordan. I think it's Bosna or something in Scripture passages. But it's outside of Israel. Israel, if it's that rectangle, uh, Petra in Jordan is there. If you've been, uh, some of you have been perhaps on tours in Israel. Anybody been to Petra? Anybody? There was somebody in the service last night. My parents went there in 1996. And it's a fascinating city that is carved out of a rock. Edomites lived there in ancient times. It's no longer inhabited, but it's actually kind of a tourist attraction because of the amazing uh, way in which those ancients had built their homes into uh, the rock. The only way you can get in or out is through a very narrow passageway that then opens up to this kind of rock palace inside of a rock palace, and you've got to take a single file horse or camel or, or walk in because it's easy to defend in that sense. And perhaps this is the place, a place prepared by God. Whether this is the place or not, it's, it's been suggested and, and it may be likely, but. Uh, Perhaps they're going to hide out there. And Jesus in Matthew 24 was even saying, go, when you see the abomination, go, go, go. Why does 
Christ need to protect people in the tribulation? Because there's going to be a population of believers that will begin that next era of the, great, of the millennial age. And so there needs to be a, a population. And so God has this, this all mapped out. But it's not without trouble, verse 15. Then from his mouth the serpent, Satan, spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river. So God somehow, you know, puts a drain in, in the path of this flood caused by, the, by Satan and uh, swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So some will be protected and uh, others will perish, but God, in his great sovereignty, has full control. If we could get this slide off once more. Um, as we think about evil in the world, it sometimes gets us down. The closer it gets to maybe our family or our immediate situation, or in this case our country, or however it is that you feel it, do you feel the effects of sin? Yes. Do we feel um, how sin affects us personally? Do we see maybe uh, how it's affecting others we know and love or tempting or draw them away. And, 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 and God uses these kind of events to just alert us to the reality of evil, but not so we are alarmed, but rather so that we are awakened to the power and the control of God. So when you feel that sense of alarm, do you go back to issues like the security of your salvation you're based on the blood of the Lamb. You go back to the sovereignty of God and, and passages like this that while we don't always understand every detail, we get the impression, the right theological foundational impression, God is able to handle everything because he handles evil and Satan himself. We are in good hands. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are uh, so often... Uh, fearful and in our fear we sometimes become uh, pretty self-absorbed and, and while each of us has uh, a different life story and different challenges different places where we have brushed against uh, sin and evil and different people that maybe have come to our minds or circumstances or whatever it might be oh god i pray that we would be redirected uh, especially in these moments to uh, draw our confidence fully to who you are, knowing that you're, since you have, have prophesied and promised what the future will be, then you are fully in control of it. And so you are fully in control of our lives yet today. We rest in that in Jesus' name. Amen.